Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm your host, John Good, and this is your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of April 16th, 2023 through April 22nd, 2023. If you're listening on, on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way, YouTube will keep pushing out the content to you. And if you're listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review on there as well. Also, make sure to check out the description because there is a link to the show notes where you can check out all the articles that we talked about as well as the other articles that are important, but we didn't quite have time to cover those. Also, one last announcement before we get started. If you haven't seen the release video on my YouTube channel, I did actually release a new training platform for cybersecurity. So things like cybersecurity training for certifications, just overall training for skills improvement, and then also career services, things like mock interviews, career coaching, and also uh, resume and cover letter reviews are on there as well. So go check that out. It is cybertrainingpro.com. Again, the announcement video is on the YouTube channel. If you use the code LAUNCHPARTY, so that's launch party, one word, and you'll get 40% off on the entire platform. So anything that you wanna sign up for or check out, make sure to use that code as well. A reminder that that does expire on April 24th, 2023 at 12 a.m. Pacific time. So you only have a couple days here to still take advantage of that offer, but just wanted to throw that out there. So if you're interested in cybersecurity training, definitely check that out. But without any further delay, let's go ahead and jump into the articles. So first article, Montana TikTok bans its first passed by any U.S. state. Montana has become the first U.S. state to pass legislation banning TikTok on personal devices. TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance, we know this, has been accused of posing a national security risk through data gathered from users. We've talked a lot about that on this show and just the overall controversy around TikTok and especially the U.S., the government, and states specifically, but other countries are starting to get in on this too. If signed into law by Governor Greg Gianforte, the ban could come into effect in January. Legislation makes it illegal for app stores to offer TikTok. It does not, however, forbid those who already have TikTok from using it. Violations of the bill could carry a penalty of up to $10,000 or 8,000 euros, not sure why they put euros in there, but, uh, or uh, euros or uh, pounds. I'm not sure, right? Like, I don't know why you would put that in the article, which would be enforced by Montana's Department of Justice. Penalties apply to companies rather than individual users. So, you know, first of all, it's interesting that they're putting this ban on these app stores, right? So like the app store for Apple or Google Play Store, things like that. It's like, hmm. Uh, that that seems interesting that you know you're you're gonna go after Google if you're Montana the state of Montana right like I I don't know how that's gonna work out for you but you know I guess it's gonna be banned for all however many people are in Montana I don't know how many people are in Montana it's not a lot obviously compared to like a California or a Texas or something like that right so you know we'll we'll see how much pushback comes of this because. Honestly, I mean, I don't know how many people are using it in Montana, right? A lot of people do outdoors things and stuff like that in Montana. So, but 
it is interesting to see a state kind of taking the stance against that, right? We've seen that with privacy regulations. Some states are enacting their own privacy requirements that like California has requirements and some other states have started to kind of follow suit where they are not relying on the federal government to step in and actually put these things into place. They're saying, no, we're just gonna take a stand and go ahead and put these in place. So it's interesting, you know, TikTok continues to be in the news, obviously. So I'm sure they'll be in the news next week, right? Another article. Next article, Elon Musk wants to develop Truth GPT, a maximum truth-seeking AI. Here we go. On Tuesday, Elon Musk said in an interview with Fox News, News' Tucker Carlson, that he wants to develop his own chatbot called Truth GPT, which will be a maximum truth-seeking AI, whatever that means, right? I'm going to start something which you call Truth GPT or a maximum truth-seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. And I think this might be the best path to safety in the sense that an AI that cares about understanding the universe is unlikely to annihilate humans because we're an interesting part of that universe, Musk said <laughs> during the Fox and Friends show. Interesting, right? Kind of like Terminator vibes, you know? Musk also was also critical of OpenAI saying that he played a pivotal role in setting up the organization, but it's not clear if it's doing any good. He also accused OpenAI of training AI models to be politically correct, which he considers another way of being untruthful. He previously criticized the company for being closed source and effectively controlled by Microsoft in a tweet in February. So if you're not aware of, first of all, I guess what ChatGPT is, it's an artificial intelligence chatbot where you can ask it questions and it's going to respond back with answers, right? And the idea is with artificial intelligence is that it's gonna learn over time and become smarter, more intelligent, hopefully be able to evolve its, uh, its brain power, right? And so ChatGPT specifically is developed by OpenAI. That's the company that produces it. And they are funded by a lot of Microsoft dollars. So it's something like over a billion dollars, I think. Uh, we covered it before in this show, but I'm pretty sure it's something well over a million dollars that Microsoft is putting into OpenAI, artificial intelligence, chat GPT, right? Like it's a, it's a whole movement in the industry. But I'm not entirely that surprised to see Elon Musk saying that he's going to create, uh, you know, a truth GPT, right? It's, it's within the realm of something that he would say Will he do it? I don't know, you know. But apparently he doesn't want humans to be annihilated, right? So I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> you know, maybe that, maybe that was his whole plan of taking over Twitter. He just wanted to consume all those tweets, use that information as fact, regardless, and then just push out a new product. Maybe. I mean, you know, anything's possible, I guess, right? So... We shall see, but interesting article. Takedown of GitHub repositories disrupts Redline malware operations. Redline information stealers operations have been disrupted after the takedown of GitHub repositories used by the malware's control panels, cybersecurity firm ESET reports. Malware targets system information, cookies and other browser data, login credentials for various applications and services, credit card information, and crypto wallets. Available under the Stealer as a Service business model, 
Redline was seen being offered by 23 of 34 Russian-speaking groups that were distributing InfoStealers last year. Each of the group had an average of 200 members. Redline is sold on, an underground, on the underground forums and Telegram channels. Affiliates purchase access to an all-in-one control panel that acts as a command and control, so CNC, server, allowing them to generate new samples and to manage stolen information. So a couple things in here, right? For one, we've seen a lot of malware and uh, DDoS services and things like that going to this ransomware or malicious software as a service kind of model, right? Like that's not that new. We've been talking about it on this show for a while. There's been a bunch of different examples of that, especially with like ransomware as a service and denial of service as a service, right? Uh, those two have definitely come up. But, um, you know, one of the things that we've also talked about on this show is this idea of malware groups or malicious software developers utilizing things like GitHub that are open to everybody for malicious reasons, right? So to host their malicious repositories specifically in this case, because GitHub, right? But, uh, you know, we, we've seen that starting to pop up. We've also seen GitHub trying to take steps to combat that, right? For instance, taking down different uh, repositories that malware groups are putting up. And specifically, you know, a lot of this kind of malware and software is coming out of areas like Russia. We know that too. So it's just interesting to see this kind of back and forth, right? And think about that in your own company, if you're creating software, especially that's available to the general public and not like a B2B or business to business kind of model where, you know, like an AWS, right? Like I can go on AWS right now, I can sign up and I can create an account, I can put stuff on the public web, right? I mean, it's, it, you know, typically it's not gonna be free on a lot of these services or it will be limited if it is free, but that's the idea, right? Like I can just go do that. And so theoretically, right, on some of those services, especially if you can quickly spin things up, then you can just spin something up, put something malicious up, and then when it gets shut down, you just kind of pivot and create a new account, right? I mean, obviously there's certain limitations like email address or something like that, right, that are in place. But, you know, as a business, how are you going to combat that if you offer things, especially again, to the public, right? Because when it's offered to the public versus like a business where there's kind of, you know, some more steps in place, maybe it's more expensive. There's kind of these barriers in place. Uh, when it's available to the public, just anybody can go sign up, right? Like it's a lot easier to overcome any kind of hurdles that you put into place when it's in that case. Because you, as a business, you want all these users to sign up. You don't want them to have, you know, all these sales funnels or these, these barriers to have to go through in order to sign up because that's gonna restrict who's gonna sign up. People are gonna get bored of the, the funnel or you know, having to click all these different things just to sign up. And it's just, it's a pain, right? You wouldn't wanna sign up for a service if you had to go through 50 different dialogues, would you? No, you wanna just go on there, quick, put in your email, put in a password, maybe a little bit of information about you, credit card, bam, signed up, right? Go set everything up. So it is kind of an interesting back and forth between those kind of groups. So definitely, you know, just another interesting article. But here's another GitHub article that's interesting too. GitHub debuts pedigree check for NPM packages via actions. 
Developers who use GitHub Actions to build software packages for the NPM registry can now add a, co a command flag that will publish details about the code's origin. This feature is intended to further enhance the security of the open so source software supply chain, which has become a common target for cyber attacks. So if you're not familiar with this uh, issue, basically supply chain refers to where you're getting your code from, or if you're getting libraries or modules or something from somebody else. It's just like if you're creating like an iPhone, right? Where are you sourcing your different parts from? So that's kind of the idea. And especially with open source software, you know, a lot of companies have not been great, especially developers have not been great about documenting or tracking that supply chain. So if something malicious happens somewhere in the supply chain with one of the libraries or modules that you're using, a lot of times it hasn't been caught. And that's an issue, right? It's not just necessarily a vulnerability. It's, you know, maybe somebody took over that software development process and that person's malicious or, you know, all these kinds of things. And then as you kind of go up the supply chain, right? Sometimes there's like three parties in between you, right? So maybe you got it, you got your software library from somebody, but they got their some of their code from somebody else. They got some of their code from somebody else. You know, and there's just this, this whole supply chain. So that's kind of the idea here. And GitHub Actions is a continuous integration and continuous delivery CI/CD platform. So a DevOps kind of platform, which provides a way to automate arcane command line input and in software builds. Often used by software developers to me uh, mechanize the build process, packages distributed through the company's NPM registry, which hosts more than 2 million of these modular libraries. And NPM specifically has had uh, its fair share of issues, especially within the last year, two years. It, we've talked about it a lot on this show even. So there's a quote, starting today, when you build your NPM projects on GitHub Actions, you can publish prov provenance alongside your package by including the provenance flag, so dash dash provenance. Explained software engineers Brian DeHammer and Philip Harrison in a blog post provided to the register. This, this provenance data gives consumers a verifiable way to link pack a package back to its source repository and the specific build instructions used to publish it. So it's kind of, it's building that supply chain paper trail, if you will. The SLSA provenance uh, schema consists of a subject and NPM package, details about specific input materials, so the source repo and commit SHA hash, and specific build steps articulated in the build configuration file. The reason for publishing this information is to provide a verifiable record of the steps that created a particular software artifact. So, you know, one of the concerns is not only where you got your software, right, or the kind of software that you brought in, but let's say it has a library in there. And then there's a malicious library named the exact same thing, right? but that replaces the actual good library, right? That's kind of another issue, right? It's, kind of, it's almost kind of along the lines of code signing where you can track that process and see who signed it, but they're just trying to give more information about how that software is compiled, where some of that came from, if it came from other sources, and just overall making things hopefully more secure or give you more information. We've seen GitHub make a lot of good steps. Seeing them start doing things like 
code scanning and offering that for people, especially with like open source software and just a bunch of other stuff. So GitHub is doing awesome. Next article, used routers often come loaded with corporate secrets. So this is really interesting if you're interested in building a home lab or if you have built a home lab. More than half of the enterprise routers researchers bought secondhand haven't been wiped, exposing sensitive information like login credentials and customer data. Researchers brought, bought 18 used routers in different models made by three mainstream vendors, so Cisco, Fortinet, and Juniper Networks. Of those, nine of them ju uh, were just as their owners had left them and fully accessible, while only five of them had been properly wiped. Two were encrypted, one was dead, and one was a mere copy of another device. All nine of the unprotected devices contain credentials for the organization's VPN, credentials for another secure network communication service, or hashed root administrator passwords. And all of them included enough identifying information or data to determine who the previous owner or operator of the router had been. Wow, that is insane. Eight of the nine unprotected devices included routered router authentication keys and information about how the router connected to specific applications used by the previous owner. Four devices exposed credentials for connecting to the networks of or other organizations like trusted partners, collaborators, or other third parties. Three contained information about how an entity could connect as a third party to the previous owner's network, and two directly contained customer data. So in any organization, right, from an information security standpoint especially, and a compliance standpoint, well, okay, so let's break that down. Compliance, almost every compliance framework has some kind of requirement to properly sanitize devices and data from those devices. So, you know, a lot of times people think of hard drives on computers, right, or servers, totally makes sense. But for instance, in a device like a router, like a Cisco router, right, that has internal memory where it stores memory, right? It has non-volatile memory because if you restart that device, you want it to come back up with its configuration. You don't want to have to reload that configuration, right? It also has RAM, right? So it has memory that is wiped when you reboot the device. But, you know, this is really bad, right? When you're releasing equipment and you're not properly sanitizing it, well, first of all, you should properly sanitize it. Then there should be a second verification step or check to make sure that it was wiped, right? And that's by somebody else, right? You wouldn't want to have the exact same person who said they wiped a device check that device, right? That should ideally be two different people or two different groups. Remember, remember separation of duties and making sure that, especially when things are leaving the company with sensitive information like that, that you're not relying on a single source or a single point of failure because that's going to set you up for failure, right? Like, it, it's pretty simple, right? So for devices to get out like this with that kind of data is just crazy. I'm very interested to know what kind of companies, you know, that was because obviously, especially with really, really secure companies, right? They handle secure data, maybe classified data or something like that that would be insane, right? Like that would be so bad. And that would come with a lot of uh, penalties, you know, and punishment for those kind of companies. But, you know, maybe it's a financial company 
Now, either way, I'd be really interested to hear about that. Also, you know, from a customer standpoint, it's like a business, right? Uh, if you're doing business with another company, right, a partner, vendor, whatever, and you're connected with them, and they are storing your data, you know, that's super dangerous too. And then also, if those companies are under compliance requirements, right, maybe your auditor is going to take a second look at you, right? Because clearly you're not doing your job. And maybe these are companies that aren't under any kind of audit regulations or compliance regulations. Things like ISO 27001 and HIPAA and stuff like that. You know, obviously it's way worse if they are, but that's kind of a customer uh, reputation. It's kind of a reputational hit, right? Because especially the ones that have the customer data on it too, like it's so bad. It's so, so bad. Like that is just a fundamental thing of releasing equipment that you should sanitize it, right? You shouldn't be in such a hurry to release equipment and then not sanitize it. So, you know. Next article, Lockbit ransomware encryptors found targeting Mac devices. Lockbit ransomware gang has created encryptors targeting Macs for the first time, likely becoming the first major ransomware operation to ever specifically target Mac OS. New ransomware encryptors were discovered by cybersecurity researcher Malware Hunter team who found a zip archive on VirusTotal that contained what appears to be the most to be most of the available Lockbit encryptors. Historically, the Lockbit operation uses encryptors designed for attacks on Windows, Linux, and VMware ESXi servers, so virtualization servers. However, as shown below, and, and this is in the article, the archive uh, from VirusTotal also contained previously unknown encryptors for macOS, ARM, FreeBSD, MIPS, and Spark CPUs. So, you know, if you're familiar with malware or viruses or anything like that at any kind of level, right? Typically, typically a lot of these programs work off signature databases. So they they look for specific patterns, basically, right, in files and um, operations, behavior, things like that, right? Depending on what the software is. But, you know, typically malware developers, they go for the low hanging fruit. So they go for what is going to give the biggest payoff, right? So Windows computers are pretty much everywhere, right? Almost every organization has Windows computers. Not every organization has Linux computers. Not every organization has Mac OS computers. Now, typically, what do we see the most of? So we see Windows, right? For sure. Linux is definitely going to be in that second spot with VMware ESXi, right? Because there's a lot of virtualization in companies. But we're going to see a lot of those in things like servers and processing power, storage devices, you know, things like that. But things like Mac OS and was it, what else is happening here? Spark, ARM, all of those operating systems are definitely on the smaller end of the scale, right? So there's gonna have less users that have them, at least in organizations. And so why would a malicious attacker go after those uh, relatively low value devices, right? Just because there's not a lot of people that have them 
going to be less successful, less chance to have a successful attack or compromise. But one of the things that traditionally people will argue, right, especially people that are not as informed, is that, well, Mac is, is not vulnerable to viruses, right? I can't count the number of times that I've heard that, especially from people that are not in the industry as far as cybersecurity and IT. I've heard people in IT say that too, which is amazing to me, right? That is just amazing. But it's not that they're not vulnerable to viruses, right? It's just different, right? It's different and not as many, pe not as many people in the world have Mac computers. So it's not always as lucrative for malware, malware groups to develop malicious software or viruses or worms or anything like that for those devices. That's really it, right? If they had, if it was flipped and the same amount of people now that have Windows computers had Mac computers instead, I guarantee you there would be a lot more Mac OS malware, right? It's just how it is, right? But we see it uh, at events like Ponda Own where they bring out Mac computers and people find zero days, right? Like, you know, that happens. So it's not that they're not vulnerable. It's just that it's not always as lucrative for there to be malware for them, right? So and don't go running off trying to correct everybody that says that they're not vulnerable, right? Like, you know, but uh, they are. They are vulnerable. So keep that in mind. Three CX supply chain attack was the result of a previous supply chain attack, Mandiant says. Hackers linked to North Korea appear to have carried out the first documented instance of a supply chain attack that led to a second subsequent supply chain attack, researchers at Mandiant concluded in a report released Thursday. The attack in question targeted the video conferencing and online communication platform 3CX and occurred when an employee downloaded a compromised version of the financial trading software XTrader. The attackers then used access granted by the malicious XTrader software to lace 3, 3CX's desktop application with malware. This is the first time that we've seen a software supply chain attack lead to another software supply chain attack. Charles Kamekel, Mandiant's uh, consulting CTO, told reporters in a briefing ahead of the report release. So this is a very big and very significant to us, was a quote. Both attacks were likely the work of financially motivated North Korean-aligned hacking efforts. Indicators from the attacks show varying degrees of overlap with multiple North Korean cyber operators that Mandiant described as involved in financially motivated cybercrime operations that have demonstrated a sustained focus on cryptocurrency and fintech-related services over time. So, you know, I think the big takeaway here, and this has been a big attack that's been talked about a lot in recent news, but, you know, the thing with this is supply chain security, right? We talk about it a lot on this show, is securing your supply chain, making sure that you know who your vendors are, what you're getting from them, what their vulnerabilities might be, you know, insecurities with your vendors, making sure that you use secure vendors, tracking your open source software, right? Like all that kind of stuff. But yeah, typically what we see is a single hit that leads to a compromise of their actual victim, right? So we see the attackers maybe go after a vendor 
and then they're actually going after one of those vendors customers or somebody that they do business with right we don't always see it where there's kind of multiple hops and you know it's kind of an interesting avenue in general right if attackers start going down the line to hops right like that obviously adds complexity to the issue but you know it's, it's an interesting uh it's an interesting tactic i think from that standpoint just software supply chain in or supply chain in general is a very interesting attack vector but with with software it's just i don't know if it, it feels like it's a little bit difficult for companies to get get a hold of right we've seen a lot of companies just have issues with it seen solar winds right like that was a big supply chain issue because a lot of companies use solar winds so when solar winds got hacked that affected a lot of companies right and a lot of companies think well ah what are we doing right how are we protecting ourselves so you know i don't want to dive too deep into that specific attack but uh that is definitely one that you should look into if you're looking for recent breaches and issues The security and productivity implications of low-code, no-code no development. The low-code, no-code develop uh, movement provides simplified app generation, but it needs to be understood to be safe. We're struggling with to satisfy the demand of new software. The laborious effort of writing code has become a bottleneck to innovation in general and being first market in particular. Low-code, no-code environments are introducing a higher level of, of abstraction, often using concepts like drag and drop icons and data flow diagrams. So basically, the whole idea is that you're using, uh, you're not actually developing the code a lot of times, right? So maybe we're using, uh, maybe we generate some kind of tool, right? So that way, whoever else on our team uses it, they're using like a GUI-based interface that can do a lot of the stuff, but they're not having to deal with the code. That's basically the idea. It could be internal, it could be external, right? But that's kind of the idea. Uh, this is like the, the, what you see is what you get. The uh, WYSIWYG, uh, the, um, the, the user interfaces like that, right? So we saw a lot of this with web design, right? So you could just drag and drop things, create a website, be good to go, right? Like that's basically what this is getting at. But, you know, where is the line as far as, when you do that right like what can you create where it's safely repeatable you get consistent results and there's no kind of bugs with it right and that's kind of the that really is the debate of this right is because especially with like security right how much can you automate versus how much do you need to be manual or be able to uh, customize it more right to your liking where is that line, right? You know, and things like IT, I would say, a lot of times with typical information technology, you know, a decent amount of that can be scripted out. That can be just a very boilerplate kind of templated setup. With security, it's not always that way, right? Because a lot of times with security, we have to intervene with a process or something because we see something that we just know is an issue, right? Based on what we know, our skills, previous knowledge, previous attacks, whatever, right? 
And that's just kind of the overall debate with that. So it's obviously not something we're gonna solve right now, but it is something that goes on when you're thinking about automation, how to simplify things, especially like in cybersecurity, when you're trying to get things to a point where you can just bring on new people that don't necessarily have to have very uh, low underlying knowledge as far as how things operate. Maybe you wanna simplify it, make it very easy for them to just maneuver and create filters. I've even seen this with actual SIM tools, right? So trying to make it very easy and just dragging a little module in the, into the filter or in the, the search query and just being able to have it do its thing. But then you kind of lose some of that background knowledge of if you have to customize it, right? And you're relying on that vendor to make it very easy and just work. So pretty interesting. All right, that's gonna wrap it up for the last article for this week. Again, I'm your host, John Good. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for April 16th, 2023. Through April 22nd, 2023. If you're listen, watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And also check out the description because there is a link to the show notes. If you're listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe, leave us a review. Let us know how you enjoy the show if you wanna hear about other things or see other content on the YouTube channel. It goes for obviously YouTube as well. And then you can check out the description because there, again, there is a link to the show notes with all the articles that we covered, as well as other articles that we didn't have time for. And then again, just a reminder, if you're looking for cybersecurity training, check out Cyber Training Pro. That cybertrainingpro.com, that is my new platform. Use the code LAUNCHPARTY, that's LAUNCHPARTY, and that will give you 40% off of everything on the platform. Again, that is gonna expire on April 24, 2023 at 12 a.m. Pacific time. So make sure that you take advantage of that. You only have a few days left to take advantage of that discount. But with that being said, we're gonna wrap it up for this week. I wanna thank you for joining me and I'll see you next time.